Hello and welcome. This is JHE Ministries Bible Study. I'm Jeffrey, minister and chaplain with JHE Ministries, and I'm glad to have you listening today. In our Bible study, we have been studying the book of James, and we are about to finish this last chapter of James with chapter 5 and finish the book. We should be able to finish James today and then hopefully begin our study with the book of Luke, one of the four Gospels written by Luke. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to chapter 5, verse 13, and let's get started. Verse 13 begins, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for, for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We are going to get into meeting specific needs and concerning prayer. The following passage on prayer falls into two sections. Verses 13 through 16 constitute a call for prayer in every circumstance of life. Verses 17 and 18 will illustrate the effectiveness of sincere prayer. So here in verse 13, we see that one circumstance that calls for prayer is the experience of suffering or being in trouble. When such an experience comes, Christians need patience. Back in verse 9, Christians are not to grumble in bitter disgust, nor are they to express themselves in oaths. Instead, that we read in verse 12, Christians should pray. Patience comes from God, and prayer is an effective way to obtain it. James urges anyone who is cheerful or in good spirits to sing psalms of praise. These songs or psalms are also prayer. Verse 14 shows us that sickness is another circumstance where prayer is needed. And concerning such prayer, James gives detailed instructions. The sick person should call for the elders of the church. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, the elders are instructed to shepherd the church of God to do the work of a pastor. Thus, the sick person is to call the pastors of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil. Prayer is more significant of the two ministries performed by the elders for the overall emphasis of the paragraph belongs on prayer. There are a number of reasons for understanding that the application of oil is medicinal more than sacramental. 
It is a well-documented fact that oil was one of the most common medicines of biblical times. Joseph, Josephus reports that during his last illness, Herod the Great was given a bath in oil in hopes of effecting a cure. It is evident that then James is prescribing prayer and medicine. Getting into verse 15, the assurance is given that prayer will make the sick person well. In the final analysis, this is what affects the healing. In answer to the prayer of faith or prayer offered in faith, God uses the medicine to cure the melodity. The statement, the Lord will raise him up, means that the sick man will be enabled to get up from his sick bed. If it was sin that occasioned his sickness, he will be forgiven. This suggests the possibility that because of persistence in sin, God sent sickness as a disciplinary agent. The conditional if he has sinned, however, makes it clear that not all sickness is the result of sin. As we arrive to verse 16, James draws a conclusion from the promise of verse 15. Since confession of sin and the prayer of faith bring healing, Christians should confess their trespasses or sins to each other and then pray for each other. It is not merely the elders who are told to pray here in this verse, but the Christians in general. If a person has sinned against a fellow Christian, they should confess the sin to that person. This will no doubt result in mutual confession to each other. Then the two believers should pray for each other. If the sin has caused sickness, healing will follow the confession and prayer. James proceeds to add the assurance that prayer is powerful and effective, and it is indeed. The righteous man referred to here is the one whose sins have been confessed and have been forgiven. His prayer is fully able to secure results such as healing of the sick. Now, as we look at verses 17 and 18 together, we find that James now offers illustrative proof that a righteous man's prayer is powerful and effective. Elijah James says, was a man just like us. He had no superhuman powers. He was by nature a human being and nothing more. However, when he prayed that it would not rain, it did not rain. The explanation of his power in prayer is twofold. One, he was a righteous man and he prayed earnestly. So James assures his readers that such answers to prayer are within the reach of any believer. Now to finish up this section and this chapter of James, James discusses bringing back the erring one or having concern for the wanderer. From the last verses, 19 and 20, it is clear from the words, my brethren or my brothers, 
that James addresses this last exhortation to believers. And exhortation, again, is encouragement. It is also apparent that he speaks of the possibility that one of them may wander from the truth. Now, verse 20 gives reason to believe that the truth from which the wanderer turns is the saving truth of the gospel. James's purpose in these closing verses is to encourage Christians to make an effort to bring that wandering person back. Two worthy results of such an accomplishment of this are cited. First, it will save him from death. Now keep in mind that this cannot be physical death because of the Greek text of save a soul from death, which is referring to a spiritual death. That is what James has in view here. Uh, since scripture teaches that once a person is regenerated, they can never be lost, it may be assumed that this wanderer is not a genuine believer. He is one who has been among the believers and has made a profession of faith, but his profession of faith has been superficial. To bring him to genuine faith in the truth saves his soul from eternal death and covers his many sins. The wanderer's sins will never be held against him again. As difficult as it may be to win such a person to save in faith, the eternal results make it infinitely worthwhile. Now that concludes our study of the book of James, and we have time to start the book of Luke. So if you want to quickly turn to the book of Luke, chapter 1, we'll go ahead and get started. I want to give a little bit of an introduction to the book of Luke before we start reading some verses, if we have time. The Gospel of Luke is divided <clears throat> excuse me, into 24 chapters and contains narratives and sayings of Jesus cast in a variety of literary forms. Luke is the third of the four Gospels in the Bible. Now, the term gospel literally means good news. When we spread the gospel, we're spreading the good news. The gospel here in the New Testament can be summarized as the message about the kingdom of God established in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, who is enthroned as Lord of all. This good news describes events to which all scripture points and declares that all principalities and powers are defeated once and for all by Jesus the Messiah. Finally, all of humanity will be judged according to the reception or the rejection of this good news. Now let's take a moment to know about Luke who is the author of this book. This book was written about 60 AD. Luke is identified as a physician, and tradition informs us that he came from Antioch, which is in Syria. Early sources indicate that Luke was a Gentile, but tradition holds that he was a Greek. He was a close friend and traveling companion to Paul, 
Paul, who wrote many books of the New Testament. We read a lot of his letters. It is well believed that Luke wrote this book while he was in Rome. Luke indicates that he was a second-generation Christian who was investigating the traditions about Jesus. Luke carefully and painstakingly examined the available records and interviewed all available eyewitnesses and original companions of Jesus in order to be able to write this orderly account, which was based on facts. Uh, the special emphasis of Luke is the humanity of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. Representing Jesus as the Son of God, Luke shows Jesus' kindness towards the weak, the suffering, and the outcast. The introduction to Luke is one long, carefully constructed sentence in the tradition of the finest historical works in Greek literature. It was customary among the Greek and Hellenistic historians, including the first century Jew writer Josephus, to explain and justify their work in a preface. Their object of doing this was to assure the reader of their capability their thorough research, and their reliability. So with that, let's go ahead and let's begin the book of Luke. I'm just going to read the first four verses, and then we'll visit about those as time remains. Verse 1, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theolopolis, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now that's the first four verses of the book of Luke. So beginning in verse 1, Luke begins by indicating that there was considerable interest in data about Jesus and his ministry prior to the present work. Luke does not say he himself actually reproduced material from any of the existing accounts, though that could be assumed from this and subsequent evidence. Nor does Luke speak adversely about his predecessors as if their attempts had failed. Luke just simply writes a narrative of the events in an orderly way. The contents of this work are the things that have been fulfilled among us. And the word used here speaks of the accomplishment of the purposes of God in the life and the ministry of Jesus. In verse 2, Luke stresses the validity of the tradition of Jesus' words and deeds, and witnesses are important to Luke to establish the validity of his information. The words, from the beginning, or some of you may have, from the first, depending on what version you're reading from, probably means from the early days of Jesus' ministry and are tied in with witnesses which are primarily the apostles whose authority Luke upholds throughout this book. 
These were not passive observers. They were servants of the word. The word means the message of the gospel, especially embodied in the words and deeds of Jesus. In summary, verse 2 makes a serious claim regarding careful historical research that has weighty implications for our estimate of the entire gospel. We are running out of time, but that gives us a good introduction to the book of Luke and what we can look forward to reading the remaining chapters of Luke. So until next time, God bless you all, and keep living Christian strong.